Trump's team knows what it's doing now, and they'll be able to implement a lot more things. I think some people overstate it as sort of an existential threat, but the mere fact this is a possibility means that, oh yeah, we should do everything we can to prevent that from even having to sweat it out. We saw what the first four years did. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, David Nickerson, is a pioneer in using experiments to determine the efficacy of different political campaign actions. Having been there as a graduate student, working with professors Green and Gerber at Yale when they began studying get out the vote efforts. He's been professor at Notre Dame and at Temple, and for many years a consultant to progressive organizations like Focus for Democracy. David also played an important role in building the Analyst Institute and headed up experimentation for both the Obama reelect in 2012 and for the Clinton presidential campaign in 2016. I really enjoyed hearing David's story. If you're interested in the use of evidence in politics, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David Nickerson of Temple University. What do Blue State, Sierra Club, and Indivisible have in common? They all use Civic Shout to grow email lists that raise money like clockwork. And now, so can you. Instead of vaporizing money with Facebook ads or burning bridges with spam, a new wave of digital directors are helping Democrats and nonprofits acquire opt-ins and nail their monthly goals with Civic Shout. Environmental Action called Civic Shout a wildly better way to grow your email list. And Clarify Agency saw a 200% return on ad spend in just two months. Head to civicshout.com forward slash partners to learn more and schedule a demo. That's civicshout.com forward slash partners. So David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, my name's David Nickerson. I'm currently a professor of political science at Temple University, in addition to working as a consultant for statistical companies, political campaigns, donor advisor networks, and yeah, political things. I got my start in earnest in trying to do organizing in 2000 when Don Green got his first big grant from Pew Charitable Trust to study youth voter mobilization. And he basically set me loose and said, go negotiate with all these groups and see what you can figure out. And we did our first set of seven experiments. And then so for the 2000s, I eventually got a job at the University of Notre Dame and spent most of my time working with community organizations to measure what they're doing, help them write grants, support that work. And then starting in 2011, the Obama campaign with Alon Kriegel and Dan Wagner came to me and said, could you help us with experiments on the campaign? So I served as their director of experiments during that election cycle, at which point my research and activities took a much more partisan turn. I played a similar role on the Clinton campaign. And since then, you know, I just try to help out where I can. There's lots of good work out there. And if you can document what works, you can share best practices and help the groups that are doing good work get money from donors. Well, you certainly are a good fit for my podcast. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and sort of roots of your political interest. Well, I grew up in Nebraska in a relatively conservative Catholic household. There were moments in my life where I wondered if I wanted to be a priest. And well, it sounds I, like Gary Hart. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's an element of like, you know, Nebraska was a red state, which at that point it had both Democratic and Republican governors and senators. But I honestly believed 
all the things about the greatness of America and the sort of promise of the Declaration of Independence. And it turns out if you take those lessons seriously, these days it leads you to a pretty progressive side of the equation where like, let's actually try to achieve racial equity and empower people. But my mom was oddly not strong, like strident in any of her political beliefs, but very active. And when she found someone she liked, she would go out and leaflet and talk to people and she would pull me along. So I spent a lot of my childhood knocking on doors, talking to people about school board candidates and city council candidates. So I guess it wasn't that surprising that I gravitated to this in graduate school, but I kind of fell into that by accident. What did you learn talking to people outdoors as a young kid? Having done that a little bit after my freshman year in college, doing some canvassing, I learned a lot about people talking to them in person about whatever political issue was relevant then. I think what I mostly learned that is if you say hello in a very friendly manner, most people will be nice to you. And if they're not, that's on them and not you. It wasn't until yeah, graduate school when I was old enough to have sort of political opinions and put things into a framework where I learned much. Yeah, I would say most of the things I learned about politics or people just came from like, I'd, I was a biker, so I'd go on very long bike rides and you need to get water somewhere. And in Nebraska, that's a farm. And you pull up and most farmers are really happy to talk to you because they don't see a lot of people. You start listening to their worldview. And yeah, you get to understand people a lot better. Like for instance, like they'd look around and talk about how you don't need government. Government just gets in the way. And meanwhile, I'm even as a 16 year old look around, like you've got power lines and paved roads. That's a lot of government interference that gets you that stuff. There might be agricultural subsidies. Yes. So uh, tell me about going off to college from Nebraska and what you studied there. I went off to Williams College for no particularly good reason other than cities scared me. And I thought that I'd get a pretty good education and there was a lot of culture shock. It turns out there were not too many people with mullets and tight acid wash jeans on campus. So I stood out a little bit and I was, my entire family is natural scientists. I thought I'd be a biochemist. And then sometime midway through my junior year, I decided that micropipetting, just like I did in my father's lab at a seven-year-old, was not any more interesting than it was when I was seven. So I figured I was mostly done with the math major, so I should do that. And I was really interested in philosophy. I've been reading political philosophy since I was 14, which is the nerdiest possible form of rebellion you can imagine. And so I majored in math and philosophy. Is it rebellion because you're of the scientists in your family? or Oh, the rebellion was I picked up the most subversive book I could, being like the Communist Manifesto. And I thought, oh, okay, that's not bad. So then I think I bought a Marx Engels reader, and Marx made lots of references to people I had not read. So I'd pick them up. And once I got out of like the Feuerbach and Hegel stuff into more mainstream stuff, I enjoyed it a bit more. But That's that's super interesting. I love people who are self-educated in that way before a formal education. Yeah. I, I, I viewed a lot of things as common sense that it turns out the secondary literature wants to complicate. And sometimes those complications were useful. And sometimes like, I think you've lost the forest for the trees here. So my brother was a Williams grad also, and it was a good four years for him. Was it for you? You can get a really good education at Williams. It wasn't a good fit for me at the time, but... Did you go to work uh, after college or did you go on to grad school right away? I went to North Carolina to teach math in High Point, North Carolina, which I sort of arbitrarily, I, after college, I was looking at my job options as an investment bank, a consulting firm, and an advertising agency. And I chose teaching, probably wanted to become a professor later on, but I didn't know that at 22 because I was really at sea once I left the biochemistry major. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I taught math and teaching kids to draw a line is socially rewarding. I actually loved every minute of it, but ultimately I'm spending most of my day talking about how to graph a line. And so I went to grad school in political theory thinking this would be much more interesting. I can tackle big topics which span histories. And then in graduate school, I shifted over 
and ended up with a more methodological bent and studying voter mobilization. But the only thing I get a job doing afterwards was teaching statistics, which is teaching graduate students to graph a more complicated line. So I didn't really escape it. Was it Yale that was grad school yeah. for you? Yes. Who were like the profess main professors you worked with there? So I went to study with Ian Shapiro in political theory, and that was great. And I enjoyed it, but ultimately I looked around and said, I'm not John Rawls, who's going to have that one singular idea that changes how people think about justice. And so then I was going to study the political economy, the welfare state with Jeff Garrett, but then he moved to UCLA and I'm not the type of person who I thought I would do well without an advisor being there I could bounce ideas off of. And I had been playing Don Greenvent's board games. So I've been playing his board games with him. And he had this grant. And he said, like, why don't you help me out with these grants? I thought, okay. So like, it just naturally became my dissertation. So I totally backed into it. But yeah, Don Green and Alan Gerber were the two people I worked with most closely through my graduate education. And they're, of course, known as pioneers in applying analytics to politics, right? Tell me about Don Green and, and, and his work for people who are not aware of it. Yeah, so randomized controlled trials have been sort of the staple. It started off with agriculture, with R.A. Fisher in the 19-teens, and it gradually came to the medical sciences in the 50s. And in the 70s, the economists and, you know, public policy type people gravitated towards it. In psychology, you know, they adapted the laboratory setting pretty quickly. But in political science, people had not been doing the equivalent of drug trials on campaign interventions. So Alan Gerber, I believe, was the one who said, like, why don't we apply this to voter mobilization? Don is an effective evangelist and good at raising money. And they're both extremely smart. So they created a cottage industry of let's raise the money and hire people to go knock on doors or send mail and then see how effective it is. And they did that in a pretty nonpartisan way, right? Completely nonpartisan. It's all C3 money. Yeah. Do they have a, like a politics behind the scenes? I, I've never been clear. So Don was a registered Republican for years. I don't know how much of that was personal politics versus the optics of it. University professors are generally assumed to be very liberal. So I think in terms of his credibility on the witness stand for expert depositions was probably, at least in one case, I saw it was very effective where the opposing lawyer thought, oh, here's a gotcha moment. It's like, well, what party are you registered of? He's like Republican. And the <laughs> lawyer's like, what, really? And did a double take. <laughs> Don... I mean, he grew up in California and went to Berkeley for graduate school. So I would, I, he leans left, I'm sure. Don's been willing to work on both sides of the aisle. He really values the science there. Yeah, I mean, he did stuff, if I remember, back with Texas governor candidate that was a Republican. Yeah. Yes. And he was working with, I was invited to a conference at Oxford hosted by Lynn Vavrick, among other people. Lynn, who recommended I talk to you, by the way. Oh, well, Lynn is a, a good egg, and I appreciate her support throughout my career. But she invited some academics and practitioners from both sides of the aisle. And I was, I think, more on the practitioner side of it. But when the Republicans got up, I was surprised that every single one of them began with, we did this experiment with the help of Don Green. And I was like, I know that guy. So... Beyond board games, tell me about your involvement in, the, in their work and how that got going and what you did and, and the dissertation. The work was just starting off. I mean, so their first experiments were done in 98 and 99. And in 2000, they got the large grant. And Pew had funded groups like Acorn and the Pergs. And I'm trying to remember who else. Those were the two biggest, and the U.S. Student Action, I think. And they both had children and courses to teach, so it was much cheaper to hire me to 
go around to all these cities, go out to bars with the local organizers and try to twist their arms into doing randomized controlled trials, which at that point we didn't have down to a science. And so sometimes it'd be like, let's take all the registration cards you've collected on campus, literally shuffle them like a deck of cards, deal them out into treatment control groups. Now I'm going to take the control cards, put them in a shoebox, and put duct tape around it. Oh my goodness. And this is our control group. Because those experiments went really well, we got additional money for 2001. In 2002, we were involved in that. And if I were better on the Bible, I'd be able to say, like, if Don Green is Peter and sort of the rock of the church, I'm whoever was out talking to the Philippians and going out trying to evangelize. Because, again, being without child or teaching obligations, it was very easy for me to go do all the legwork. So what kinds of things were you guys learning? How effective things were and what wasn't effective. I mean, this is an era where campaigns have moved away a bit from the grassroots tactics. So knocking on a door in a midterm election, you could pretty easily get like a nine-point boost in voter turnout. I mean, I literally knocked on tens of thousands of doors and you have people say, oh, thank you. That's so nice of you to come by, which, you know, fast forward to 2008 and no one's saying that, right? Because the Democrats had figured out that this works. And so they applied a lot more resources to it. And people in Ohio were tired of people knocking on their doors. And at that point, phone calls were very effective. You'd get three to four points off of them. And we could also then do tests on what type of messages work. I mean, so one of the first experiments I layered onto things was what's the effect of telling people they're polling place. And the first set of findings were super exciting where it added about two points onto a three point phone call, which is like, that's amazing. I also don't believe that. Because if a phone calls two point, how would just giving this one piece of information, especially when giving them that information by a postcard, doesn't make a difference. And if I'd been a good academic, I would have immediately just published it. And who worries about whether or not it's true? And so then I tried to replicate it because we're just doing so many experiments every cycle. I found that it didn't really make a difference. And then once I collected about 24 of them, I found, oh, this makes a difference when they've just changed polling places and really no other time, which is not a very interesting psychological insight into things, but it's very practical for groups on the ground. What were Green and Gerber like to work with? They're both very smart and um, can provide a lot of useful insight. Don has an evangelist sort of fervor and inspirational method where everything, like once we, the, the, the first year it was just me. And then by the time I had left. There was a team of like six people sitting around the table doing experiments all over the place. And when you leave a Monday morning meeting, he's saying like, this is going to be a ground changing experiment. You know, everyone feels like, you know, they're excited to go off and do the work. Alan had young kids and wasn't tenured at the start. So he was harder to get a hold of. So his auto reply was always on. One time I walked into his office. It's like, your phone's unplugged. He goes, yeah, people don't bother me as much as when I do this. I once asked him, like, hey, have you been on leave? Like, I haven't been on leave. What are you talking about? I was like, I haven't seen you in your office at all. It's like, oh, well, David Mayhew's on leave. And so I've been using his office because no one knows to look for me there. So when you got Alan's attention, he was great. Like, his comments were spot on. But So how did it turn into a dissertation? Well, it didn't, actually. I, I just had tried to write a dissertation on um, sort of the psychology behind voter mobilization. And the idea was like, here's all these theories that people have about what motivates voters. And after I'd been working on that for about a year, Don came to me, he said, you know, you're working on a high risk, low reward dissertation. Why don't we move you to a low risk, high reward dissertation? <laughs> Which I agree <laughs> would be a good move. And I immediately recognized, I wish he had told me that Year before, year before when I wrote yeah. my proposal. So I ended up writing a dissertation on interpersonal influence and how much social networks caused 
political change in people. And the nice thing was, since Don was running an institute and good at raising money and committed to science, I mean, he said, like, so what do you suggest? He's like, how about interpersonal influence? I said, what's that? He says, libraries down the street, go look it up. So I went and read a couple books are out there and I saw where he's coming from. I thought, okay, so this is all observational. And here's some pretty prominent work that might overstate the effects of the networks because birds of a feather flock together. And here are experiments that could help out. So I sat down and wrote a plan for three experiments with a budget. And I went to Don and said, here are three experiments. Here's the timeline. I think it cost about $50,000. He's like, sounds great. Go talk to Ella, which I've never raised easier money in my life. <laughs> and I really wish that I had multiplied by three or four so I could have had bigger sample sizes. I did not expect him just to say, yes, yeah, sure. I thought he would think like, well, here's where we could apply or do other thing. But he was just like, yeah, sounds great. Go for it. Which is an amazing resource to have. I mean, like, it was, it was an exciting time. Yeah. And it seems like I, so I got through a, PhD program through the ABD stage and never wrote a dissertation and went off and started a company instead, but partially because I had no idea what to write the dissertation on. And so I, I'm a little envious that you were pointed in this direction and had these resources and were able to push the field along. You know, that seems like a pretty good fortune. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it was a really magical time. I came back from a set of the experiments. I said, the design you have the design we have for these experiments is really inefficient. We should organize it this way, this way, and this way. And I wrote up the mathematical proof of what the efficiency gains are with it. And I submitted the paper and it was accepted and won lots of awards. And that wouldn't have been possible a decade later. <laughs> right. This is one of those things where like, getting in early, there's some just low hanging fruit you can take advantage of. So after you got this thing done and defended, what what was your next move? had to go on the job market and my then girlfriend now wife decided like if we're going to navigate this together we need to be married because no one's going to make a second job for a girlfriend or a boyfriend and i had two interviews that year one of which lost out to someone who's done very well in the field and the second one i just completely blew the interview but Selling experiments at that point was a hard sell. Political science, like it was attacking a lot of literatures, either directly or implicitly. So there wasn't a natural constituency for it. Meanwhile, my wife had 14 interviews and a few offers. And so she accepted at the University of Notre Dame because they seemed the most likely to be able to hire me in the future. Having private universities with large endowments are good for that. And then the next year they were searching for a methodologist, someone to teach their stats courses. And they made it really clear that they were only interviewing me because Barry to Alexandra. And they didn't have a kind of them. Yeah. So they would even say, like, well, so we you teach them useful things, like not just experiments. It's like, yeah, I know. I mean, I took a lot of stats courses at Yale. I could teach whatever like here's the courses I teach. But I mean, once I got the job, well, I mean, I was got tenured pretty quickly and published and it was a really fun place to be, in part because they had a really good Latin American cohort of graduate students. So I could study politics of Latin America in a way that would not have been possible otherwise and made me see the US uh, in a slightly more clear light. So you had referenced working outside of the university for Obama and other entities. Tell me about that thread as you're at Notre Dame. So... Having the Obama campaign located in Chicago, and it was literally an hour and a half away, made it feasible. And I went to my chair and said, here's the opportunity. And it was always pitched for like, here's how it helped my career. Here's how it helped the university's thing. And he thought this would be an easy sell for the dean for me to take unpaid leave and go work for Obama. And I had to be very strict about things like absolutely no university resources would be spent, which I never took an Obama call on my landline. It's always on my cell phone. Um, the one thing I will admit I, I did is I used their Wi-Fi from time to time. 
I'm going to turn you in for that. Yeah. Yeah. So there had to be really strict lines there. And so like, even though I had graduate students who were like doing work as a part of a research team, I had to make sure it had nothing to do with Obama, which is actually not a problem because the Obama campaign also had very strict non-disclosure agreements and I wasn't even allowed to say I worked for the campaign. Wow. Tell me about the team there that you worked with. So I was located in analytics. We were in what they called the cave, which analytics itself was very secretive at the time. So the cave used to be, I think, a storage room in a law library for the law firm that used to have that thing. And it was small, but at the end of it, we had like 50 people working shoulder to shoulder. It was unmarked. And when reporters came in, they closed the doors, which... (laughs) <laughs> like made it just brutally hot and we didn't get air conditioning until late September. But I twice heard the Secret Service when they came through because someone like Obama or Biden was coming through, make the same joke where they'll open the door, look, they're scanning. It's like, this has to be an OSHA violation. And it probably was. But my job was to go around the campaign and see where experiments could make us more efficient in the cycle and inform what we were doing, which was really empowering. And for me, it was great because I get to like, let's go talk to fundraising. Let's go talk to the advanced team. And also very validating compared to where... Yeah. By that time, things had started to change in political science. But like, even in 2008, like when I, I think in 2008, I did 140 experiments for a large coalition of groups and mostly with the state tables. Before I took that grant, I contacted the Obama team and said, like, by the way, would, are you of any interest? And they were very clear, like, no. And so then they came around three years later. I was like, okay, cool. Um, and yeah, my job, some of it was doing the experiments and some of it was looking at, say, messaging or targeting and seeing where the lessons from social psychology could make our scripts a little bit better or um, other things. So, So do you think it made a difference? I mean, in terms of the number of votes or the election outcome, no. Like Romney wasn't winning. Yeah, but I mean, all these things matter on the margin, right? What was a change that maybe the campaign made in response to some findings that seemed like it was in the right direction and probably paid off to some degree? The answer to that question, I think it's pretty clear, but it's not an entirely socially positive outcome where when people heard rumors that I was working for the Obama campaign, this is true for everyone on the campaign, the second they found out, the first thing they'd say to you is, please make him stop emailing me, right? Because there was that, at that point, audacious, like two or three emails a week. And everyone says like, they're tired of the emails. And so we worked with the fundraising and email team and said, why don't we set up an experiment where we had a control group that only got it right before the deadline, quarterly deadline, one that was getting it like once a week and one that was on this normal schedule. Uh-oh. And we lost a lot of money. You lost and, a, mo- a lot of money by not hitting the people more. Yes. yes. Like the, we just, and it was I very was clear. That was what you find out. Yep. Yeah. And so then we said, well, their financial team's response was like, great, what we're doing works. It's like, yeah, but what if we upped it? And so then we had a group was like, here's our status quo, and then let's make it almost daily. And sure enough, we raised a lot more money. And um, one wonders about the long term effect on the on the donors that way, especially when you multiply it across all the campaigns and all of yeah. the consulting groups. I mean, so one of the hypotheses that we had was that we've just poisoned the well because they've been emailed so frequently since 2007. Subsequent work with campaigns suggests that's not the case. Like, even if you have no relationship, it's not like, oh, I'm getting this brand new email. I mean, even if you try to like script it out so it has a narrative and you're getting useful information every time, you're still better off just spamming them. The mental model I have of this is like your supporters are unlikely to unsubscribe because they've donated before and they're committed to the cause. And you just have to hit them at the moment when they want to donate. And so that means put it in front of the top of their inbox whenever you can. Because they're going to actually not even notice a bunch of the emails. They're going to not be in the mood. I mean, I, I know as a recipient of emails, 
I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, for me, it's kind of like a panhandler. Like every once in a while I'm feeling generous or I have loose coins or something. And a lot of times I'm an, I'm grumpy and I'm, and I'm not too helpful. Yeah. So I, I, that is one of the more distressing things I found. Again, if anyone ever questioned my commitment to science, the fact that I let people see those results as opposed to like flipping them very suddenly. Were you finding this exciting to be in a presidential campaign with a great, amazing candidate? No, it, it was best professional experience of my life. And not too long after that, there was a documentary film team that wanted to know about analytics and politics. And they were interviewing me and they're talking about like, well, it's wrong. Well, you know, working a hundred hours a week is hard and it takes away from your family. And I'm not sure I could do this again. And he sort of asked me like, so knowing all that, would you ever do this again? And at that point I had recovered from my sleep deprivation, but I still sounded like one of those heroin addicts who's like, yeah, I'd do it again. <laughs> it's just I'd like, take another hit. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I did. Although that time, knowing what it, the strain it put on myself and my family, I could at least negotiate a consulting role as opposed to a full-time role. So that helped a lot. You mentioned Elon Kriegel and Dan Wagner as people you work with. They both went on to start consulting firms. And Civis Analytics and Blue Labs. One more of software platform in the long run, but both prominent practitioners in the analytics and politics space. Did you ever work with either of those firms? Yeah. Tell me about that. So with Civis, when they're starting off, I provided some advice every now and then. And, but, you know, pretty quickly they ramped up. I mean, when you go from a firm of like 40 to 200, you can hire a lot of different needs. I still work with Blue Labs and some of that's out of loyalty and some of it is I've had 23 years of making mistakes. And so one of my chief value adds is when it comes to research design or something else, I can say like, that sounds promising. It's a dead end. Why don't we try I made that instead? mistake 10 years ago or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. You should try something else. So a lot of what I'm providing is no longer the youthful enthusiasm of like can dive in and do 72 hours of coding, but try to make those young people who are smart and energetic, point them in the right direction. 2016 Blue Labs in the Hillary Clinton run against Trump, very controversial and disappointing in, to, to people who felt like resources might have been misdirected, at least in hindsight, that let us down in the Electoral College. What's your view on what happened in analytics in that race? The analytics were very clear from the start. One of the big projects I was tasked with was trying to do a multi-channel persuasion campaign where we'd measure like who's persuadable by TV versus digital versus mail versus phone calls and doors. And to try to get as good a read of that as possible, we had a very large survey that we had to do in advance. And, you know, what did it's like, it's supposed to be a representative of the overall electorate as to who we could persuade. And what did this show? I mean, this is pretty early on. And it's like, it showed that the race is very close in Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio. And we have a major problem with non-college educated white voters. Every one of the analytics tracking surveys said that. Since I was part-time, I was not in some of those final decision-making meetings, but I know the information that Alon was going into those meetings with. And he had talked to me a little bit about what he thought the overall strategy should be. The fact that the campaign might've used rules of thumb, like we haven't lost Michigan since 84, Wisconsin State Force, we shouldn't go there, I don't think was the fault of analytics. I guess that's generally good to hear, not that we're necessarily using the rule of thumb methodology. How did you respond personally to the, to the Trump rise? I'm really good at looking at past patterns 
and predicting what will happen. And, and I'm not caught by surprise too often. And I'm also, I think, somewhat based on my background, a little more attuned to what independent centrist Americans might think than the types of people who care passionately about a topic and want to help campaigns win, right? I mean, you, you need a passion that typically means you're left of center, which is great. I was surprised by Trump when I saw him come down the escalator, which struck me as comical, and start off by saying that Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers. And then it turns out like two days later that they're paid actors behind him. I was like, this guy's cooked. And like, then he follows up with prisoners of war or losers. I'm like, okay, I do not see the Republican base voting for this clown who's also been divorced multiple times, is pro-choice. And I completely misread the situation. But once the first set of primary results came through, it was like, I am wrong. This guy is going to get it. And it's not a question of consolidation. He touched a nerve. Any th projections we do have to be based on past history. And you're drawing by analogy. Like You can put fancy numbers behind it. But ultimately, you're applying those, like what numbers we apply to this analogy. And I drew in the wrong analogy. I wasn't thinking, oh, this is exactly who the Tea Party wants to hear from. I was talking to someone in the Clinton campaign in like August, September of 2016, and they were telling me, and I don't know if they knew what they were talking about, that like a lot of the things we were trying against him just weren't working. They were getting pessimistic. This was before the controversy with pussy grabbing, but it was, you know, well into the final stretch. Is that ring true? Yeah. No, it was, and, and that's true for persuasion in general. You have to try lots and lots of things to find whatever hits. And it's a question of who's the messenger, who's the target, and the core audience. I mean, it, it involves a lot. And Trump was tricky in part because the narrative kept changing, right? Because part of the way that attack ads work is it gets amplified by the media. But if the media changes the subject and one of the things on the Clinton campaign that I did was shift our message testing away from very expensive and slow traditional forms of polling and focus groups. We still did a lot of that, but we dialed that back a little bit and layered on the top, we're going to test things on representative samples in surveys where we'll show people a randomly selected ad and then measure their opinions afterwards, which cost less than a third as much and would give us an answer back in days and be batch the voter file, which is all great. And one of my theories of the case was that if there are union members protesting in front of every one of his properties every day, the media is completely ignoring them. If we put emphasis behind that, we could help them get more and it could break through. But every time we tested those ads, it just didn't move it. Like the one example that worked was this architect, which was not going to be <laughs> persuasive. Like here's a white collar worker. And I, I went to a lot and I said like, look, I mean, we need like, here's the narrative, here's his core strength. We need to attack his core strength and it reinforces our messaging as well. And Alon very fairly asked, what fill in some blanks do you want me to do? Do you want me to tell that we should switch our advertising strategy because the guy who designs the test says we should ignore them and go with his gut? And it's like, that is 100% fair. And so I could say that every single one of the ads we wor used worked. A lot of it was on misogyny or racism, and it was very effective at pulling over college-educated Republicans who were uncomfortable with that aspect of the Trump package. But obviously, there were some non-college educated white voters who were not receptive to these messages and or found more appealing Trump's vision of America. When you think about what you learned then and since about him and his connection to his base, what lessons do you think there are for 2024? 
I think his core supporters have now identified as Republicans. It's difficult to pull them away. There was not a candidate in the Democratic roster who was going to beat Hillary Clinton. And I personally like Hillary Clinton. However, she was saddled with 20 years of attacks, which is going to make it very difficult for her to... Gave her a ceiling. It gave her a ceiling and meant that attacks on her will have added potency because people have been hearing it for so long. It was just accepted wisdom. And, and, she, and, and she ends up with more votes, even despite the Comey thing that may have cost her a couple points. Yeah. I mean, there was a, it was a, bad luck. A, a lot of things, but I mean, like you go with the candidate you have there, right? But I think a candidate like Joe Biden, who regardless of on policy grounds in 2015, 2016, who would have done better for working class voters, I think could have prevented the bleed a little bit of working class voters more than Clinton did. By the time you look at 20, though, those coalitions are in place. Having Joe Biden at the top of the ticket didn't move things. And I suspect in 24, we shouldn't give up on non-college educated white voters, right? I mean, and if you look at Democratic policies, we were clearly catering to trying to help everyone in America, right? So I suspect that seizing on the discomfort people have with Trump's policies and his rhetoric, that's probably the way to eke out a narrow victory. And also, it's going to be a mobilization game. Like We just have to be prepared for record high turnout on his side, where not only does he inspire the base, but People are dissatisfied with Biden, and I think it's likely to be another high turnout election. So base mobilizations can be really important. Yeah, and also bleed into third-party candidates, maybe, particularly for people who, are, who would be Biden voters but are unsatisfied with some aspect, some particular grievance. Yeah, yeah. I, and it sort of goes in fads. Is persuasion or mobilization more important to a campaign? And I'm always a it's all of the above strategy. Right. I mean, just we need to make sure that our base feels empowered and motivated to work. If they're really our core voters, they would be showing up, right? They're the people who you got to convince them it's worthwhile voting for our team. Here's why. So while you're doing this, I assume your wife is still working at Notre Dame, although you moved to Temple at a certain point. Tell me about what's happening in your academic career uh, and your life while we're moving through. Obama, Clinton, and beyond. So it's kind of a weird thing where I'm mean, not allowed to publish the Obama stuff because it's all done by an NDA. Actually, it's owned by OFA, and the Clinton stuff is owned by HFA. And so I can't publish that, which creates a hole in your publication record. On the one hand, the coin of the realm of academics is publications. My coin purse is a little lighter than it might have been. But I do have some street cred for actually knowing how campaigns work. And so people would bounce ideas off me, but that's about the extent of it. And it became clear that my wife and I needed to leave Notre Dame and Temple had openings and made us jobs and it we moved. And then it just so happened that Clinton campaign was based in Brooklyn. So that was a pretty easy commute for me to go up and do. Were you publishing some things? Yeah. What sort of work? Um, so I was continuing to publish work on American politics and leaning much more heavily into um, social psychology. So for instance, with Todd Rogers, he and I published a piece looking at plan making as a way of increasing people's stated commitments to voting. And so all those annoying questions you have to ask in phone scripts, we pioneered and proved that they could work. I would say that some of the groups that came afterwards made it a little less clunky. If you look at the original papers, like, yeah, that script didn't go well. Todd had started the Analyst Institute or had been the first executive director. Were you someone who participated in Analyst Institute stuff along yes. the way? Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, I, uh, Podhoiser was nice enough. I mean, again, Don and Alan had commitment. So when Pod invited like to talk and like if Don and Alan couldn't make it down, which is often the case. Like I can hop on the train, get down to DC, and I'd be sitting in a room with like at that point eight people. It's kind of fun. And 
So when it started off, yeah, Todd was just out of grad school and had done some stuff on voting. He published a paper with Alan Gerber and he is extremely smart and has a healthy deference for other people's expertise as well. And so he's like, you've been doing this for a while. You've been in this space. What advice do you give me? So I was like, I, I wasn't running the place. That was all Todd. I mean, like <laughs> Todd's doing great, but like I was for the first few directors, I knew each one of them personally. Aaron, um, Aaron, Jennifer Green. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, it's a small community. I mean, now it's a pretty big community, but at the time it was a small community. And so yeah. I, I could be the grizzled 32-year-old at that point. And, <laughs> you know, it's one of those wonderful things where I worked out at some point just for fun, like I think in 2010, like what percentage of the field's experiments have I done since 2000? And it started off at close to like 90%. And by the time you got to 2008, where I was doing 140 plus experiments, I mean, it was well below half. And by the time you get past that, like I'm barely counting for like one or 2%. And it's a wonderful thing. And you look at all the young, smart, dedicated, passionate people who are doing lots of cool experiments. And yeah, I can learn a lot from my peers in a way that once upon a time, I was just trying to educate people like, what's a randomized controlled trial and why should you do it? And it, it's great where that sort of accepted that it has a role and a place. I think people put too much emphasis on them <laughs> and, and don't understand quite what the limitations are, but very few people seriously question that they can tell you something useful now. I'm not very close to this stuff, but one thing that I've, I, I guess I've asked other people about and I had concerns about is how much that gets our focus on the tactical instead of the strategic, like the big moves that candidates or campaigns could make. They're in a whole different category than something that can be A-B tested or you get experimental results on the small. And, and that goes back to like the example I gave before where I thought like we needed to be trying to talk about working class people who Trump reneged on their contracts and just pounded that home. You know, one, you see one ad in a survey that may not change your opinion. If you hear about this for months and months, it, it might start to sink in. I remember or, when Ted Kennedy was running for re-election against Mitt Romney and he just hammered Romney on things like that. It put a gulf between them. Of course, it was Massachusetts, it was Kennedy, but it was effective. And that is impossible for an experiment to replicate. And there's other things too where experiments will often be, I'll tell you about something in general, but does it resonate with that particular candidate? And it could be like, you're just the wrong candidate to make that message. So I am a big believer in, at a certain point you have to decide, What's our narrative? And that is a complicated process to figure out. And let's just go with it. And then the tactics start to kick in. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. When you think about the development of randomized control tiles and their use in politics by Democrats, progressives, which is, you know, flowered, as you've said, over this time that you've been in it, how do you think we're doing? And do you have a sense of, whether that's equivalently part of what happens on the other side. I think in one sense we're doing well. There are more experiments done than ever before. Results are being disseminated more quickly than ever before. There are people who are receptive to that and can implement those results than ever before. One of the core deficiencies we have is that we don't have a registry of experiments. So that if I'm an organization who did, say, a canvassing experiment or I sent out some mail or a digital thing, and I find it didn't mobilize people, I'm reluctant to share that result because that will jeopardize my funding. I, unfortunately, in the knots, caused the demise of several groups where if you come up with like our third set of null findings, the funders are like, why would we continue funding a group that's not working, which is 
perhaps a pathology of the funding side. It's like all these papers that somehow get published that are just statistically significant enough. Right. So there's that, right? So we're missing all these null findings. And so we overstate the effectiveness of some of these tactics, or we are over-indexing on something which worked at one place at one time. That is a problem. And we've also seen the decline in effectiveness of tactics. Like so text messages, when they were first done, were getting four or five points and it replicated a lot. Social pressure mail, you know, was moving people six points, even without the really invasive, here's how your neighbors are voting. Now, if you send four pieces of social pressure mail next year, half a point is on the order of what you expect. Because people have seen it already or they're seeing it over and over. And they're getting a lot. Yeah. yeah. Text messages are now point we, two, unless you do something. We don't have a any way at all of collective action over the space in choosing when to use effective tactics or not much. Right. I mean, effectively, though, like the Voter Participation Center is so efficient at sending this out. They act as a bit of a coordinating mechanism on text messaging. That's a little bit harder in part because people are sending a lot of fundraising texts as well. But, you know, if something like if Movement Labs becomes the VPC of texting, that would help some of the coordination. Like that's possible. Do you work with Movement Labs? Um, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little about you talked about working with community groups and other organizations in the progressive ecosystem. Tell me some examples of of that and what you're learning there or helping them learn. To try to think. Well, one of the groups I've been working with recently is called the Civic Center. It's run by Laura Brill. And they're trying to get high school students pre-registered where possible. I've had her on the show. Not You've had her on the show. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah, but, but yes. Footnote that anyone can now listen to a whole episode, but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so we haven't had the funding to do a randomized control trial yet. Laura is more than open to it, but we've tried to do some observational study and have come up with our best estimate. It looks really cost effective. Right, working with movement labs, we studied the effect of putting an image of your polling place in the text, encouraging you to vote. And if the typical text gets you about 0.2, we were finding in this last midterm that sending the image get a 0.5 percentage point boost. So every thousand we sent out created, you know, five votes, which is really, really cost effective. So a lot of these things, like it's important tactics versus strategy, it's very cost effective, should be funded. There's only so many people you can text and it caps out. But like, so fill up this bucket, move on to the next one, and then see how deep we can go into the communities. Give me one more example. So I've been working closely with Working America, trying to study um, some of their tactics and that's sort of the opposite end in terms of depth of what their like the movement labs is sending texts, sending people to doors. And they're remarkably good at persuading people at the doors to support progressive candidates. And the effect of, in their case, the people who they were able to recruit as members are more responsive to future persuasion outreach. Um, there's some ambiguity as to whether that's because they're identifying really differently or you're identifying a persuadable voter. But from a bigger picture perspective, it doesn't really matter, right? You found a core audience who is conflicted about the two parties and you can activate and say, here's where the parties stand on economic issues that matter to you. And they're very receptive to it. So what's your career look like right now? How much of it is professor at Temple? How much of it is consultant? What's the mix? So I was granted a leave of absence from Temple after the spring semester in 22. And I went to work full-time for a donor network called Focus for Democracy. Their mission is we find the most like underfunded and effective tactics so you can maximize your political donations to their network. After that cycle was done, we took stock and decided that 
probably better for me to be in a consultant's role there. So my portfolio is still doing some donor advising through Focus for Democracy, working for Blue Labs and more statistical-based consulting, and then working for different organizations, fills out the rest. Some of them are project-based and a few of them are retainer-based. It's a really fun mix for me. And part of the reason I took the step back from Temple is I think this election is really important. And I don't have to sit in a foxhole in Ukraine to support democracy. I can sit in my sunroom behind a computer and do my part. So, Well, I, um, I'm glad you're doing that. We need a lot of people on board, obviously, for this somewhat scary election coming up. I, I'm used to every election is the most important election. And I don't always believe it. And, and sometimes, like in 2004, I mean, I did a lot of experiments, worked with a lot of groups. It's like, Bush is not going to lose. And it would be nice if we got those 60,000 votes in Ohio. They weren't there. And in 2012, Romney wasn't going to win. And even if he did, though, at no point would I think like Mitt Romney would violate the Constitution. Yeah. Agreed. Like, that just wasn't there. Whereas this time, like Trump's team knows what it's doing now, and they'll be able to implement a lot more things. I think some people overstated as sort of an existential threat, but the mere fact this is a possibility means that, oh yeah, we should do everything we can to prevent that from even having to sweat it out. We saw what the first four years did. Yeah, and he seems to be running ahead at this moment in time. It doesn't really matter until we vote, but it's hair-raising nonetheless. It is definitely hair-raising and suggests that it's a real possibility. But some of that is the voters don't remember what the first four years were like. And hopefully the campaign and the media will remind them that is the role of a campaign. I don't have a tremendous faith in the media getting that right at this moment, unfortunately. Plus, there's a whole set of the media working really hard to lay out alternative facts. I mean, one thing that worries me about the election is like one of the constants in American politics is the performance of the economy dictates this. And the economy's been doing well. If you ask people, though, it is out of sync with how the economy is doing. I think some of that's because people don't read traditional media anymore. They're getting more from social media. So, And some people are theorizing that the rise in prices that have stayed is underlying that. I, I don't know how you tease that out. That'd be difficult to do. I mean, because one of the, the few times we have seen that it usually is happening at the same time as other problems. Like, so if we think about like what was facing Carter in 1980. Yeah. What? Is there something that leans you towards optimism about 2024? Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you need faith that a set of people will look. Be responsible. Well, we'll be responsible and say, like, is this really who we want here? And is that three-year age gap enough to make the change? Or... I, I wish people would understand that you're electing a team more than just this this head. Obviously, it matters who the candidate is, but not as much, I think, as maybe the average voter thinks. Yeah. One of the things that gives me the biggest worry is voter turnout, where there's a lot of people who the economy is not working out for them, right? If I were coming out of college nowadays... I would be less optimistic about my future and for very good reason. And then you try vote and, for change. It, well, vote for change or try to convince them that someone's going to be sitting at a table making decisions. Do you want team A or team B? And it makes a big difference. I, I'm hopeful that message will eventually sink in, but politics are complicated. And the fact that the Democrats have a diverse coalition means that it's really impossible to all row in the same direction. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't find myself very interesting. So I, I'm really the wrong person to ask that. <laughs> That's why I try to avoid being the guest on podcasts myself. Much more 
interested in hearing what other people have to say than what I have to say. So you, you picked the right sideline here. I've picked the right side of the microphone, hopefully. But you you make it so, and I, I do think you're interesting, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And I think you have a really interesting career and an enviable one. Anything else you want to say? Well, thank you for having me on. It's been an honor. Okay. Thank you. That was David Nickerson. He is at focusforwarddemocracy.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.